This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Morning. It's uh, three minutes past nine. You are tuned to 102.73 Triple R. Time for this week's Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. And my name's Dr. Beach. How are you, Dr. Beach? Good morning, Dr. Burton. How are you? <laughs> You're the only one who calls me Dr. Burton. I'm well. How are you? I'm well as well. Good. It's wet outside today. It's quite damp. Mm. Yes. In Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Maybe not if you're um, streaming. Uh, no, if you're in another place. Fire time or, lo- or location. To us via the interweb. Yes. Uh, thank you very much, Tim, for uh, fabulous vital bits. Thank you for playing Tom Waits. It's a Tom Waits kind of morning, don't you think? It is a Tom Waits Not kind that of we're morning, playing yeah. any Tom Waits, but, um, yeah, I did appreciate that. And, yeah, thank you, Tim, as always. We, we were just telling Tim how much we loved him. We do. We, we all had a group hug here. <laughs> no, we didn't. That's just a bit weird. It was a virtual group hug. He's looking at me askance. <laughs> I think he's going out spew. <laughs> hey, uh, we're going to kick things off for um, the Sunday morning science blog, which is what, what we do here at Triple R. We do. I, th- I think we do it pretty well. We, we started off and then we've got um, we've got the doctors, the psychologists coming in after us. Then we've got Einstein a go-go with Dr Shane. And then we have Eat It. Which is kind of food eat it, science. Eat it. Yeah, it is food science. It's, it's a, a nice it's kind of transition, a segue into science the... Science and art. Yeah, science and art. That's what we do here on 3 Triple R, And we are dependent upon subscribers. So any of you out there who are listening and thinking, I, yeah, I really enjoyed this. I enjoy Sunday morning. In fact, I enjoy listening to Triple R lots. But, hey, I never got around to subscribing. Now's a good time to do it. In fact, well, any time's a good now, time to do it. Maybe not because there's no one to take the call. Well, you can get on the computer. You can, well, it, true. It, yeah, you can, you can you fill can in all time. your details and you can send us money. 
And congratulations to everyone who won prizes too. Hey, we better let's let's move on to um, our program today. I want to just babble on. Can we, I want to babble no, on. No, I'm pulling this one back. All right. You're kicking off, Doctor Beach. I'm, I'm kicking off. Beach. A, I'm kicking off with a lab. I'm going to talk about the flow cytobot. This is a um, say that again. The flow cytobot. Okay. This is a bit of kit, bit of apparatus, which has been anchored off Woods Hole in Massachusetts for the last 13 years and has been collecting an invaluable amount of fantastic data on phytoplankton. As you will well remember, Dr. Burton, phytoplankton is my favourite thing. I think phytoplankton is where it's at. And this is a great paper which has appeared in the most recent issue of the illustrious organ science. And, um, yeah, I'm going to talk about that. Brilliant. And uh, I love how we're going a bit tech because we don't often kind of delve into the tech. On, on Radio Marinara. We cover kind of everything and I love how every now and then we move into the I tech, challenge so. that. I, I try to talk tech as much as I can. <laughs> and today we're going to talk tech. You're here every week. We're, we're going to talk about lasers and... Excellent. We're then uh, possibly uh, going to confirm, catch up with AJ from dive to You. We caught up with him last week, had a long segment talking about what's happening with the great sponge transplant. It is going great guns. If you missed uh, our chat with AJ last week, they're uh, heading towards the, the halfway mark of um, transferring the uh, sessile marine invertebrate biota from the existing uh, pier down at Blegarry onto a new one. And this is the first time that something of this scale and magnitude has been attempted and uh, had a little hiccup at the beginning with um, not being able to get enough glue. They're using a type of bio-glue to literally they take things things off the old um, pier and glue them onto the new one. It's super glue, isn't it? No, it's bio... Well, it's, a, it's not super glue, which is... Cyanoacrylate resin. Correct. The sort of chemicals that would probably kill the animals that they're trying to transplant. So it's something that's bio-friendly. Anyway, it's working. I don't know if you caught our show last week. I don't. Dr. Beach, it is working. The sponges are not only successfully adhering, they're actually growing and there are already little ecosystems starting to pop up. That's beautiful. So it's, it's really wonderful. Anyway, we're going to catch up with AJ to see what's been going on just in the last week, just a quick catch up. Then we're going to... Uh, have on phone Thomas Pishak, who is a photographer with National Geographic. He also wears other hats with specific marine-based conservation groups. And he's going to be doing a talk in Melbourne this coming Thursday as part of the National Geographic Live series. We've had various uh, photographers on our program from National Geographic Live, all marine um, spe- specific. That's kind of their area of specialty. Indeed. And uh, David Dublé who was on last year. David Dublé, yeah. 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 Um, Fire and Ice, I think, was the name of his talk. Anyway, Thomas is doing a talk called Wild Seas Secret Shores and we're going to speak with him about that and uh, his uh, sources of inspiration as a photographer. He also, as I mentioned, is um, very big on marine conservation but sharks and manta rays in particular. So I was having a look at his website last night. Some of the images, uh, well, they're all extraordinary. As Some you'd of, expect from Nat Geo. Yes, <laughs> and, from, and from a Nat Geo photographer... Uh, some are very confronting in terms of fisheries and some of the practices that go on both with sharks, also with manta rays, which uh, is pretty horrifying to look at. But, you know, it's important. That's what we do. Mm. We need to be aware of these things. Then Neil Blake's coming in, uh, our bait keeper, and he's got a whole bunch of things he wants to talk to us about as well. Beautiful, Neil. He is. Yeah, you'll be, you'll be wondering what's happening with the weather. I am at this point. Okay, it's a bit bit drizzly outside. I've just been looking at the radar, my favourite thing, and it looks like most of the, you know, unless you're living in the northwest, northeast of the city, the rain's passed, you've had it. Uh, 14 degrees top today, uh, 27 kilometre per hour winds. Um, tomorrow we go eight, minimum of eight, 
maximum of 18. Tuesday is 11 to 24, getting warm again on Tuesday, 24 degrees. 19 degrees on Wednesday, 18 Thursday, Friday, 19. Cloudy with little bits of chances of drizzle on all of those days. So um, spring has taken its time coming, but that's mm. all right. I'm, you know, I love winter. Um, and tides, for those of you heading out on the water, you'll be interested to know that at Point Lonsdale, that is at the heads, low water is at 11.30am today, so in two and a half hours' time. And we had high water at six this morning. Excellent. So it's rushing, that water's rushing out the heads as we speak. <laughs> Can't you see it? Can't you feel it? I can. A couple of quick news items and then we're going to play track. Uh, this one's just for mentioning, and I'm hoping we can follow this one up next week. The uh, 66th International Whaling Commission, the IWC meeting, is kicking off tomorrow in Slovenia. So a presser that came out from the Australian Marine Conservation Society. Very hopeful uh, that this will actually bring about some change. It's a very significant meeting. It's the first meeting of the IWC since Japan resumed lethal Antarctic whaling. Uh, they ignored, um, I'm reading from the presser here from the uh, Australian Marine Conservation Society, Japan ignored the resolution of the last IWC meeting. They cannot be allowed to do it again. The IWC must tighten its rules to stop nations bypassing global moratorium on commercial whaling by claiming to be conducting research. Uh, this was a very big news item last year mm. and uh, let's see what happens with this year's IWC meeting and, and uh, how nations who are part of IWC are going to respond. So this is, uh, uh, AMCS are going to be attending the meeting, uh, as I mentioned, it starts tomorrow in Slovenia, runs from the 24th to the 28th of October, so it winds up on Friday uh, and has 88 nations represented and they meet every two years. Sorry, yes, so it was two years ago that, that this uh, was a very big story. So we'll hopefully catch up with uh, Josh Coates, who's actually going to be attending, for representing the Australian Marine Conservation Society. We'll try and catch up with him next week and find out what happened. That would be indeed good to know. My name's Dr Beach and I'm here with um, Dr Bron Burton. <laughs> One of the things I like to do on a Sunday morning is take a paper from the literature which describes some recent work which has been happening in the marine field. And today's paper, the one I'd like to look at, is something which was published in the journal Science this week. And it's from a group of people who work at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, which is, you know where Woods Hole is, Bron? Massachusetts. Massachusetts, yeah. Yeah, it's out on, it's, well, it's Cape Cod. Yep. Well, Massachusetts, just near Connecticut. Mm. And the people there have gathered an enormous amount of data from a thing called a flow cytobot. Now, a flow cytobot is a bit of apparatus. Imagine a kind of a cylindrical thing, a tube. I'm going to show you a picture of it, Bron. And that can take in water samples. And inside it, it's got what we call... So in, in labs on land, we have things called flow cytometers. And flow cytometers, imagine a gate. Imagine, imagine a sheep. You've got sheep coming through a gate and you've got to figure out which ones to go to which pen to get shorn. So they go through this gate and they get shunted off to mm. different areas. A flow cytometer will do that with cells and it's got a laser which detects the colour of the cells or anything else with them and a particular cell will shoot off through one gate. Anyway, so these flow cytometers can do really fantastic measurements on lots of cells at once. What these people have done from Woods Hole is that they've built one of these into an underwater capsule which at the same time can take in continuous flows of seawater. And so they're getting measurements of what these cells are and really importantly how they divide. But let's just go back a bit. So these are phytoplankton that they're measuring and phytoplankton 
are very, very important. They account for 50% of the world's primary production, that is fixing carbon dioxide, making sugars and all of that, and also importantly producing the oxygen that we breathe in the atmosphere. So half of all that happens from these tiny little plants which are in the ocean. It's been very difficult for us, to, and these, these are tiny. Some of them are you know, just a couple of microns in size and a micron is you know, a thousandth of a millimetre. They're really small, up to perhaps 10, 50 microns. Um, it's very hard to get data on how phytoplankton behave in situ, that is, out in the open ocean environment. Mm. They're moving around, you can imagine the currents and all of that. We have a lot of information about how phytoplankton behave in the laboratory environment, but we don't know how they're behaving in the open ocean environment. That is the dynamics of the communities. Because we can't go diving down there with, with incredibly powerful with, microscopes. That's right. And you can't look at them with a hand lens. They're tiny. They're moving around. Yep. And there are just so many different ones, so many different species. It's hard to get a handle on what one particular species might be doing. These people have exploited the fact that just off Woods Hole, there's an underwater cable, power cable, and there's a mooring there. So it's not that far off the coast. Um, and they have hooked up this flow cytobot, so they've anchored it four metres below the surface of the ocean to this mooring, which has got power out to it, and it's also got an internet connection. So they've <laughs> got this computer flow cytometer in the water four metres below the depth, and it's been there now for 13 years, gathering all this really, really important data or this high-resolution data on one particular species. So they could gather it for lots of different species, but they've chosen one species which rejoices in the name of Sinecococcus. It's what we call a... It's a blue-green alga. So it's actually right. a bacterium, a little bacterium, which does photosynthesis. Just just pausing for a second. 13 years it's been out there. So as far as tech goes and tech development since that time, it's actually quite old. I can see where you're going. Yeah, no, 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 it, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just, I'm just stopping and It is quite... Well, we've had flow cytometers for a long time. They were invented in the... 80s by a guy called Len Herzenberg yeah. and used in medical science. But this, this, so we've actually got pretty much of a good handle on them. Yep. And they've been doing fantastic jobs. Oh, yeah. No, know, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not dissing it because it's old. I'm just interested that it's been out there for all that time. And since then, presumably, there have been advances in... Yes, there would have been. Yep. So, yeah, so in terms of where we can go from here, the sky's the limit. Anyway, or the ocean's the limit. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's, so let's go back. So this thing's yeah. been there for 13 yeah, years. Yeah, and it's, it's measuring this one data. species, which is called Sinecococcus. Yeah, cool. And it's quite common. It's an important component of the phytoplankton, so it does lots of primary production for not only animals in the ocean, but for us here on land. And... They have been able to... Sh so they can measure with this flow cytometer. So it's mm. imagine it's, it's measuring cell size as well as the types of cells. So it'll pick a particular cell, like say that's synecococcus, and it will measure its size. So they've been able to show when the population of cells divide. Now you think you're thinking... Imagine you're trying to figure out the population dynamics. You've got a whole group of cells in a bottle. And if you're just measuring the number of cells, you'll get an idea of how the population is growing. But... You don't know if that's a balance of new cells being made, so baby cells being... So the cells will divide to make baby cells. It's like bacteria do. In fact, these are bacteria. But then there's also loss from the population, and that can come either from, say, viruses and infecting the cells, as often happens in old cells, and then they lice, they burst, or they can be predated, they can be eaten. By being able to measure, this thing can measure how the cells are dividing or the rate at which the cells are dividing, they're actually now separating those two components of the population curve so that they can show that 
the cell, the whole population is getting denser, so they're getting a bloom of phytoplankton mm. in the early spring. But that's come about from an increased rate of cell division as opposed to a decreased rate of cell loss. Right. So that's getting really high. This might sound kind of an arcane difference, but it's really important it in population important. dynamics to figure out those two things to separate them. Also, because they've had, because there are long-term temperature records from Cape Cod, from this area, so there's a thermometer in the water that's been there for 100 years. Well, they've got accurate records of temperature for 100 years. They know how the temperature in that environment has changed. Right. And over the past 13 years, they've been able to show that the spring bloom of these plankton is getting a little bit earlier every year. Oh, wow. So as climate is changing, as the water temperature is warming, which it did do from 2006 up mm. to about 2012 quite consistently, the spring bloom was getting a little bit earlier. But in the last three years, it's actually gone the other way. Right. So it's cooled down slightly in the last three years off Cape Cod and the spring bloom has shifted. So they've been able to both measure cell division rates and therefore get a really fine handle on micro microbial community growth in the ocean. They've been able to link the spring blooming with climate change and increase in temperature. And importantly, they've been able to package all of these things together so that we now have a really good baseline set of data for understanding how phytoplankton will change as we head into a future of increased climate change. So we're talking about the um, the blooms starting earlier. Do they go for the same length of time or is it they're starting earlier and it, they're actually hanging around for longer? Uh, no, they're starting earlier and they go for just for about the same length of time. So right, once so the population increases, well. yep. then you start to get, as you would like even in a bottle in the lab, mm. once you get too many things growing in there, the nutrients run out, uh, they get infections from viruses, that kind of stuff. So the population does crash again. Um, but it, it's starting earlier. So this has got lots of, well, it, it's important data for us to, to know and to be able to understand and then work with to look at how future populations will change. Yes, and also to use potentially as a predictive tool as well. So in areas that are known to be uh, vulnerable to blue-green algal outbreaks and then, of course, flow-on effects from that into fisheries and all sorts of other things. Yeah. Um, to be able to use these, uh, what are they called? Flow cytobots. Flow cytobots. I'm just picturing Fembot whenever you say flow. I love the name. It's fantastic. Flow Cytobot in all kinds of different uh, places. Well, yes, but you need to have power to it continually. So right. that's why this is why it's been good to have off Woods Hole. Yep. So it's getting us high resolution data on this particular point mm. at the moment. Right. So even though it's quite near shore, it doesn't matter. It's still important. Yep. So there have been other long-term data sets, not quite as sophisticated as this, that have been gathered from places like Hawaii and Bermuda. Um, but this is... What about this somewhere like Gippsland Lakes? Do you reckon that could work somewhere like there? Sure thing, yeah. Because Gippsland yeah. Lakes get there. They have all sorts of trouble with... But it's not to be underestimated how sophisticated this machine is. So mm. it's, it's in the water, it gets really cold off Cape Cod, so it has to deal with you know, fluctuations in temperatures, sometimes really, really icy, wild weather, um, having seawater going through it continually as well as having all these lasers and computers in it and an internet connection that's never going to crash. All of that stuff is very, very sophisticated. So it's not like you can now go and buy them off the shelf and then whack one down in Gippsland, Gippsland Lakes. Yeah. These people put an enormous amount of work into it. Yeah. And it's... In time, there will be more of these kinds of instruments available to, to use elsewhere. But what's really fascinating now is that we have this, this baseline from which we can now work. You mentioned before blue-green algal 
blooms in the Gippsland Lakes and other places. This is a blue-green alga, Sinecococcus, but it's not one of the ones that, when it blooms, produces toxins. Right. So it's not actually nasty. And it naturally blooms. So phytoplankton will undergo a spring bloom. Yep. So as the temperatures warm into spring, so that increased temperature gives you increased metabolic growth, increased cell division times, which are then outpacing the cell loss from the population. So that's when it, you shift to a bloom situation. And we're talking about phytoplankton as opposed to cyanobacteria as well. Well, no, these, so phytoplankton can be cyanobacteria. Phytoplankton is any cell in the ocean or in any freshwater body which is doing photosynthesis. Right. Those phytoplankton can be things like diatoms, dinoflagellates, which we've talked about on this show, which are what we call eukaryotic cells. So they're closely related to the cells that well, they're higher cells, they're not bacteria. But you can get bacteria that do photosynthesis, which are also called phytoplankton. Right, okay. And Sinecococcus is one of those. Right. It's a subset. Well, kind of a subset, <laughs> yeah. I could bang on about this for ages. And they're the guys that then gave rise to chloroplasts about a billion years ago. Right. Invaded other eukaryotic cells. But they've uh, got something to answer for. <laughs> no. <laughs> they, they, we, we, have, we have a lot to thank them for. That's what they I They gave mean. us photosynthesis. They gave us... In a positive way, Dr. Beach. In a positive way. Hey, um, thank you. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We were, t- we were talking about plankton before and um, since AJ's not on the phone, I'd like to talk a little bit more about not plankton but other plants in the ocean and this, uh, these are ones which are called halimeda. Coral say, reefs. Say again. Halimeda, H-A-L-I-M-E-D-A. Good. That is a green seaweed, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's a different seaweed in that it's calcified, so it's chalky. And when it, it get a lot of these up on the coral reefs in the tropics up north. In fact, it's probably the most common green alga um, up there. People, a group of people from um, James Cook University have just published, well, it's a couple, about a month ago now in coral reefs, that there is a almost a physical phenomenon now in the reefs that people had not appreciated before now. So there's been a lot of, um, they've used, so it's called LIDAR. And this is, so from satellites, they're using lasers to have a look at what is below the surface. So we have coral reefs and you can imagine the pictures, classic pictures of coral reefs, you get the reefs forming like ridges and then you have ocean in between them, you know, bits of kind of ocean, it might be a few hundred metres wide. Mm couple of kilometres before the next reef. In those bits in between reefs now, they realise there are these things called bioherms. And bioherms are made up of old dead bits of halimeda. So okay. hal- this alga halimeda, it's, it's growth habit. It's, imagine a whole lot of little green cornflakes stuck to one another and they're chalky. Mm. And so when they die, they go pale, but they've still got the calcium carbonate, the chalk the in them. The structure. Yeah, so yep. you get these little chalky cornflakes which are built up to these huge bioherms which people now appreciate are an important component of the reef. Well, because we only just realised that they're there now, so there's about 10 times the amount that we thought were previously there and they're forming these huge donut shape. You know, these things can be from several hundred metres across to a couple of kilometres. Wow. Um, and they're several massive. hundred metres deep. Mm. Um, not several hundred, that's a bit of an exaggeration, 50 to 100 metres in depth. We really don't know much about this. We don't know what the biota is, what are the other animals and plants that are living within these bioherms and because they and how important they are to the community structure around, you know, even the, the reef itself, the coral reef itself. And because, pardon me, these are made of calcium carbonate, chalk, 
as we increase the acidity of the mm-hmm. ocean by putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, then this chalk will dissolve, as do many things in the ocean as you increase the acidity. This is one of the really nasty, pernicious side effects of climate change. Mm. So there's a lot to do. This is a new discovery. Well, we, we knew they were there, but we didn't realise they were so widespread. Uh, so now people are thinking, well, we've got to understand more about this. So you can just imagine them up at JCU so getting a whole lot of honest students, PhD students into this. We got, yeah, we just discovered this new thing. Get out there and check it out. And it, indeed, it would be fun. Quite deep. You obviously not going to be able to dive down quite that deep to um, get samples. You're talking about. Not that that matters. It's interesting in terms of sampling well, you can, methodology. Well, you, you can send stuff down there. So ten to twenty meter thick sediments. They are. Yeah, right. I exaggerated before. Um, so not 50 metres, they're yeah. 10 to 20 metres thick, but they are on the sur- on the bottom, so they can be, you know, like 50 metres down. Yep. So you're going to have to, if you... But you can, yeah, chuck stuff off the boat. Get your samples get up. Get your sample, analyse it. It's just brilliant that we are still finding stuff out and it, I, I shouldn't say that with any sense of surprise, but to find that there's an entire effective new... Um, Genre of ecosystem, eco- yeah, ecosystem, and then what will then come of that is a whole new area of research that just springs out of something like this. Yes, fantastic. The world is wonderful. We need money in science. Now, Thomas P. Peshak started snorkeling at the age of six and diving at 12. This was when he began taking his first underwater photographs with a yellow Minolta weather maker. Today, he's an assignment photographer for National Geographic magazine and also director of conservation for Save Our Seas Foundation. Spends up to 300 days a year. Can you believe that? 300 days a year in the field. He's been named of one of the 40 most influential nature photographers in the world. This coming Thursday, the 27th of October, Thomas Peshak will be presenting his extraordinary images in Melbourne in a program called Wild Seas Secret Shores. It's with great pleasure we now cross to Sydney to welcome Thomas to Triple R. Good morning. Hi, good morning. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, it's wonderful to have you here. <laughs> hey, welcome to Triple R. Um, Thank you. Wild Seas Secret Shores. Uh, let's just jump straight in. Talk us through this. What's it all about? <laughs> So basically, I will be taking the audience on a crazy marine adventure to some of the most, you know, amazing and remote. Oh, are you there, Thomas? Ocean locations in the world. You know, we'll be heading into the Indian Ocean, the the cold seas off Mexico, Canada, and we'll be exploring and basically encountering marine life all over the world. You know, really, you know, the, the whole evening is designed to give the the audience a, a you know a bit of a, a rare behind the scenes look at what is life really like for a national geographic photographer you know warts and all you know successes and failures and there's lots of those i promise you lots of things go wrong all <laughs> the time all the time <laughs> what sort of things do go wrong is are they mostly um, oh, technical the, or the, the gear breaks the gear floods the weather doesn't work we get hurricanes and typhoons and the animals don't show up you know you know most of the time things go wrong but of course you you know the 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 reader only ever sees the great images not the the tales of suffering 
behind those images. <laughs> we we <laughs> took lots of that. I promise you, lots of suffering goes on on a National Geographic magazine story. I've got uh, Dr. Beach here with me, and it's something that we've spoken about uh, at various times over the the many mm-hmm. years that we've been conducting this program. In terms of what people think, um, obviously you're experiencing the same thing that many marine ecologists do, and that's that perception out there that it's all you know lovely sunsets and and getting to mm-hmm. frolic on the beach, and it's it's not the case. No. No, no. I wish that was the case. I spend lots of in small boats, uh, you know, high at sea in rough conditions, you know, waiting and waiting. For each, for each National Geographic magazine article, I can be in the field for up to six months. And, you know, and very often weeks go by when conditions are so horrendous, we get no pictures whatsoever. So there's a lot of time and energy spent just kind of waiting, waiting, hoping for that, you know, right situation, that, that right behavior to happen. So I have learned, to, you know, patience beyond stupidity. That's my mantra. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas, it's Dr. Beach here. I wonder if you could just walk us through one of those experiences where things where things screw up. I mean, like I, I don't want to focus on the, the, the bad, the stuff that hasn't worked, <laughs> but, it, but this is, we, you kind of led us into this, not getting this fascinating picture. I wonder if there's, you'd like to share one of those experiences with us. So I basically, the last big story I did for the magazine, I spent the last six months in the Galapagos Islands. And, you know, large-scale weather patterns, oceanography, El Nino, a warming of the ocean has been happening there over the last year, year and a half. And, you know, you spend months doing, you know, really, really detailed research looking, okay, you know, these animals arrive then, you know, they behave this way, the conditions are this way. And when I arrived there, the, the whole thing was upside down. It was 180 degrees different. So, you know, you have all these wonderful ideas about, you know, siege turtles are mating then and they're doing this. And, of course, everything was completely different. So <laughs> you have to really think on the fly in that regard and kind of be able to, to you know, be ready for things being different, no matter how much, no matter how many months of research you have put in. So, nature, nature is uncooperative. Uncooperative, and of course, you can't control it, and that's why, of course, we need the time in the field. The, the the only way to get those iconic National Geographic images, there is no magic bullets. There are no secrets. The secret is know the behavior of the animal, know the ecosystem incredibly well, and be able to put in a ridiculous amount of time and energy waiting for conditions and waiting for the species, waiting for everything to come together so you can take an image that the world has never seen before, which, of course, is kind of what we want to do. We want to showcase things that are completely new and original and fresh, which is a you know huge, huge tall order most of the time it gives me sleepless nights and nightmares <laughs> i don't sleep much when i'm in the field i'll be honest with you um i wanted to ask you about the work you've doing that, that you're doing with um advocacy for shark and manta ray conservation around yeah. the world just having a look at your website last night and your images are just mm. spectacular they're also very confronting oh, um wanted to ask you about your experiences both in diving with sharks and manta rays but then some of the work that you've had to do to see them uh, at the the other end uh, where they're subjected to some pretty horrendous fishing practices. Mm. What's that experience been like for you? Um, That's a great question. I've been diving and working with sharks for almost 20 years and for me they're probably one of my most favourite photographic subjects. Um, You know, I'm I'm comfortable with these animals underwater. I'm more worried about crossing a road and getting hit by a taxi. I'll be honest with you, that's what worries me. Uh, being in the water with sharks, that's sort of almost almost a, a normality for me. Um, 
Look, it's hard when you when you when you're working with an animal that you obviously you know are very enthusiastic about and that you think is quite a critical component of the ocean. You know, the the you know we we have impacted large tracts of ocean usually through overfishing, marine pollution, and climate change. And, and as a photojournalist, I have to document those sort of things as much as I do, you know, the last pristine parts of our ocean. So for half the year, I do what I call environmental war photography, which is the impact of shark thinning, impacts of marine pollution, oil pollution, climate change. So, you know, those are harder to shoot. They're harder edged. And, you know, if you do it too often, they can get you down. However, in all these years in the ocean, I'm still an optimist. And you know, even though I've seen a lot of impact, I've also seen the ocean be incredibly resilient. And I've seen areas that were heavily damaged, you know, turn around and and recover after the correct conservation measures were implemented. So I'm I certainly wouldn't be doing this if I was an optimist. And you know, if we if we all make a major you know, turnaround now and we introduce the correct conservation measures, there is still hope for our ocean. I'm I'm incredibly optimistic about that. Yeah, we are here too, Thomas. We totally agree. It's so important to um to be aware of the negative, but to focus on the positive and to really kind of harness that energy that's out there in order to drive positive change. And that's what we've been doing. This is our twentieth year of broadcasting about wow. the marine environment. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and uh, and that's what we continue to do every week. Um, um, wanted to ask you about the Save Our Seas Foundation. I mentioned uh, in in our introduction for you that you uh, you are currently a director of conservation with Save Our Seas Foundation. Tell tell us a little bit about that foundation and what you do. So I I used to be a marine biologist and I and I kind of made made the transition from from biologist to photojournalist about 12 13 years ago. Um, and I didn't leave the research because I didn't like it. I loved the science. I just wanted to you know, to reach a much, much bigger audience. And, you know, with National Geographic, I can reach 40, 50 million readers every single month. However, I, I kind of kept sort of a 20% stake in marine science. And for the Save Our Seas Foundation, we, um, we more or less hand out $2 million worth of research and conservation money every year uh, to two individual scientists and to smaller NGOs, mainly people who, who are researching and, and trying to to conserve or raise in sharks all across the world. And, uh, and the organization has been going from probably 12 years now. So, so we have shark research and conservation projects in all corners of the globe. And, and that really is a way for me as a photojournalist to still remain connected with the, with the research world and to also you know, make a contribution to, to you know, making sure that the, the amazing scientists and conservationists who are out there you know, have have some you know, funding to to look back on, That's and um, and this is obviously a major team effort. You know, there's there's four, five of us who who you know who are in senior positions out there, and you know we're all and the one thing that really ties us all together is a passion for large sharks and for rays, really. Yeah, um, and yeah. And uh, <laughs> while we're talking about sharks, and, and you mentioned rays, because um, you're also involved with the Manta Trust, uh, wanted to ask you yep. about that. The Manta Trust, what, where where is the Manta Trust based, and, and what is it that the, I don't the trust sleep does? much as you can probably tell. I have lots of sidelines <laughs> going on as well. Sleep is oh no, actually it's not. A, I love to sleep. I don't get to do much these days. Um, you know, sharks have you know have have really captures the public's imagination for for decades now. You know, you know, and and they're quite you know high up on the conservation 
list in most people's books. Um, manta rays have always sort of flown under the radar for many, many years. And um, we, we started the Manta Trust, you know, with a colleague, Guy Stevens, who's a manta researcher. And we may start it because we felt like manta rays at that stage, about five, six years ago, didn't have a voice at all. You know, their gills were, were used for traditional Chinese medicines. And there was actually quite a large fisheries component out there impacting these rays. And, and most people had had no idea that these animals actually were were endangered. And, of course, manta rays are also a wonderful tourism species. You know, divers from all over the world are willing to spend large amounts of money to dive with these animals. So the Manta Trust, you know, really wants to harness uh, ecotourism potential and really, you know, uh, hopefully pass on the message that manta rays are worth way more alive than dead. And, you know, over the last five or six years, um, you know, we, we have a lot of uh, research and conservation projects all over the world, and the and, you know, manta rays are now listed on various conservation, you know, agendas, and you know, they've really gotten a voice and have become, you know, most likely the most popular marine animal to dive within the world. So manta rays have, have really blossomed from a conservation perspective over the last five or six years. And they're incredible animals, obviously. You know, they, they are incredibly, you know, graceful and agile. And as a photographer, they're, they're a real pleasure to work with, uh, whether that's in the Maldives or in Mexico. Oh, I, I totally agree that the diving that I've done up on the Barrier Reef, being able to come across manta rays, they're sort of like, oh, they're, they're the one that you're waiting for when you suddenly see them coming. They're, they're just exactly. absolutely magnificent to see. Um, they, they, they also have huge brains, by the way, which we only oh, right. figured out recently someday. You know, large, large brains, lots of cognition going on there. And um, they're actually, you know, most likely amazingly intelligent as well. So, so the more research goes on and the more and more, and the more marine biologists are choosing to to study manta rays, the 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 learning curve about what we know about these animals has has exponentially increased over the last half a decade. It's amazing what you know what you know, things are finding out right now. That's right. All right. So your uh, your show, which is on this coming Thursday at Melbourne uh, in Melbourne at the Arts Centre, it's called Wild Seas Secret Shores uh, at Arts Centre Melbourne. Um, uh, any last details for our listeners who might want to get along and, and have a look? I will see you guys there. It will be a, a wild ocean adventure. Uh, so hope to see you all there. Fantastic. So uh, Wild Sea Secret Shores, it's on at the Arts Centre in Melbourne this coming Thursday, October. If you want a book, you need to go to Nat Geo Live, uh, which also looks a bit like Nat Gee Olive, but uh, Nat, Geo, <laughs> Nat Geo Live uh, dot, dot org slash Australia and you can follow those links through. We'll also put a link to um, to your talk on our Facebook page so people can go and, well, and, so and check through there. Thank you so much. Lovely. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Thomas. Good luck. And, Likewise. Um, yeah, have a, have a great weekend. Thanks. You too. Enjoy Sydney. Go well, huh? Bye. <laughs> you too. Bye for now. Thomas Pashak there. He Nash. was um, manta rays, big brains. Oh, who knew? Mm-hmm. Something else for us to follow up, Dr Beach. Uh, that's right. There's always something new. Good morning, Neil Blake. G'day, how are you going? Good, how are you? Very good. I've been down on the wild Merry Creek banks down there. Fantastic day. The water's raging. So you've been out already? Wow. Yeah. Well, I thought uh, it'd be good to get into the into the mood, so, you know, <laughs> why not? If you come to Brunswick, you might as well go and visit the Mary. Absolutely. Now, you've actually come, uh, you've brought some stuff in for us to look at. 
so if, if listeners haven't caught up with you before, Neil Blake, our bait keeper, eyes and ears of everything going on in the bay, specifically focused at some of the impacts uh, and uh, very involved in... Um, last time you were in, we were talking about uh, some surveys that you were going to be doing. Are these the results of the surveys that you've brought in? Uh, well, it's a, this is an ongoing project to come up with a, a good method to actually survey microplastics in particular uh, in, in our waterways. And uh, it's quite a challenging thing, you know, whenever you raise the concept with somebody, they say, is it going to be an app? <laughs> well, hang on, you know, like uh, we've got to work out what's the point of this first of all, uh, get, get the purpose clear and, and make sure that the people who are using this, the, whatever uh, tool it is, they understand why it's being done. So what we're looking at here is a list of all sorts of different types of plastics from bait bags down to soy sauce containers, those little fish. Yeah. So you're getting people to, as they're collecting, to actually do a quick tick on this page and that might in the future be an app, so you can then get it an idea of yeah, where everything's. Right. Yeah, we need from. to we need to get uh, an accurate representation yep. of uh, what the particular items are that are the most common uh, contenders, <laughs> and uh, so, so that we can actually do some regulation into the future about their availability. So, do you want to go through the list, Dr. Beach? Well, I can see dental floss here next to fishing line, fishing lures, lollipop sticks pens and markers, fishing line really comes up as something which is really, really, really nasty when it's there because it, it can strangle animals. But I'm, th in the recent past, there have been, I've noticed at fishing spots, those little containers where people, if they find fishing line, can just the shove it in there and get it. Uh, yeah. Containers, yeah, mm. that's right. Yeah. 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 But they they're, they're, uh, need to be maintained and by uh, yeah. volunteers, essentially. So. Fishing lures here as well, and this is something that has been on my mind for many years, and it, it is a problem that exists with fishing, recreational fishing in particular, and, and I've been guilty of this myself, and I'm sure many of our listeners have too. When you go out fishing, and not these days, I don't tend to fish so much these days, but you go out and you cast, you get a snag. You get a snag, yeah. right? And so yeah. what inevitably well, can happen if you can't get the hook out is that the hook ends up, the line breaks, and there's something in the mindset that thinks, thinks, okay, well, the line's broken, I'll put a new hook on. What you're actually doing is littering, and without realising that you're littering, it's underwater, you can't see it. If you did the same thing on land and caught a hook in, in a tree or something like that and cut the line and walked away, most people wouldn't do that. They would go and do what they needed to do. Obviously, the key difference is that you can't get underwater necessarily and pull the, the hook out, but... That's right. It doesn't yeah. matter. It's still there, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and that needs to be addressed uh, in some way within uh, the, the way that fishing and angling is, is managed, but that's another story. I guess uh, I'll just cut to the chase, though, that all of the things that are on this list are actually ecologically harmful. Well, they're, they're going to pose some kind of threat to either to, uh, to the um, wildlife or, or human health, possibly. So uh, uh, that's why they're there, not because they're litter as such. I think... Um, from my point of view, the purpose of this exercise, as much as anything, is to reinforce the message to people that uh, litter is actually ecologically harmful, if it's particularly if it's plastic. That's right. And you've got polystyrene on here as well, polystyrene beads, cups, polystyrene is pretty nasty and it breaks up into smaller and smaller bits, as indeed do all plastics. That's right. And we're realising now that these plastics are actually getting into cells. So not only are they... You know, fishing lines strangling animals, but mm. broken up tiny bits of plastic, which we've talked about lots on this program, is actually getting inside cells and causing damage. But uh, the the um, 
inquiry into marine plastics uh, pollution from the federal government released earlier this year, the first recommendation was that any any changes in legislation needs to, to restrict uh, availability of these things needs to be uh, backed up by peer-reviewed science. So you uh, need data, and this is getting data, the data. And this is what the data's about, but then you need to be able to say, OK, well, this data is representative of the whole beach environment, for example, and so that's why coming up with a method that actually can uh, believe, actually uh, say that that is the case is, is critical. And this, this bag that, that I collected on the Mary Creek earlier on, for example, is essentially polystyrene, yeah. which was very high up on, on the creek bank, which is probably about two metres above the uh, existing water level now, but it was clearly put there by the a previous uh, high high water on the creek. Uh, so, you know, that's not representative of the whole creek environment, uh, yeah. and that's where the challenges come in, to come up with a method that actually does, can uh, re- reasonably be said to represent the whole, whole beach. And something in the Mary Creek up here in Brunswick is going to eventually end up in Port Phillip Bay. That's right, and my observation is that poly- Styrene is a really major sort of uh, contaminant out on in the waters and on the, on the bay, uh, but it doesn't really register too much in in litter audits and surveys that have, have been conducted using various other methods. And so that's what I'm trying to. The other thing I like about this list is that it almost makes. It, I mean, call me weird, but I like sort of collecting things, and I like you know. I used to like discovering new species of plankton, that kind of stuff. But mm. this is a list that if I were a child out on the beach, I'd want to get one of every one of these yeah, and tick them off. Right. So it makes it's it a, a treasure hunt and, <laughs> and, and it's fun. Yeah. And it, it, you can do that. I have been to the beach with kids. Okay, five cents for every bit of litter. <laughs> it's amazing how much you get collected. But if you've got a list like this as well, it's like... Who can get a confessionary wrap? First person to find me a bit of dental floss. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like Spotto. Yeah, Well, spot-o. I guess that's the other key thing in terms of the design of the study, though. It needs to be done in a way that's uh, within people's time availability yeah. and, and that they want to come, come back and do it again. You know, so there are other factors. Hey, speaking of time availability, yes. we've got about 30 seconds left. Tick, tick, tick. What's your, I think what we might do, we'll, I know there's some other stuff that you want to talk about as well. We'll get you back in in the next couple of weeks. Normally we go about six weeks before seeing you, but we'll go and have a chat in the green room because I know there's a whole lot of stuff going on here, um, also to do with the Marine and Coastal Act and uh, the amendment to ban plastic bags, all sorts of stuff going on. There's a fir- Let's mention this one quickly. If Aussie First Seal on the St Kilda Breakwater, what's that about? Yeah, well, uh, it's been there for probably about more than a month or so, looking in quite good condition. I think it might have been a uh, Sydney Swans fan that uh, failed to catch the bus back or something. Uh, Yeah, uh, I don't know, it seems a bit strange because uh, a big male and uh, should be going back to look for a girlfriend on Lady Julia Percy Island or somewhere like that, but uh, it seems to enjoy being in St Kilda. Maybe we need to get a bulldog down there to to send it on its way. (laughs) Hey, Neil, we have to wrap up because the the doctors are ready to come in and we've just clocked over to 10 o'clock. Hey, thanks for that. Um, We'll put a link to Baykeeper... uh, connections through our Facebook page as we always do but let's you and I go into the green room and we'll look in a time the next couple of weeks. Thanks Brian. Um, thanks also to Thomas Peshark. Uh, we're putting links to uh, also his talk Wild Sea Secret Shores on our Facebook page. Thank you Dr Beach. It's been a pleasure. Thank you wonderful Kent. He's been panelling today for us. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy next week. Uh, Dr Beach, you're coming back. Dr Beach, Dr Surf and Dr Burton. Indeed. And we've got a, a wonderful honour student from Deakin who's going to be coming and talking about work she's been doing on mask lap wings. A learner cherubic. Yay. Excellent. Okay, have a great Sunday. We'll catch you next week. Bye for now.
Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R Sponsors. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.